Because we're going a little long this morning, I'm going to forgo the scripture reading and just go right to prayer and get into the word. So let's pray. Our Father, I just want to thank you once more for your sweet grace upon glory of Christ this morning. I can't think of a higher privilege than for the Spirit of God to visit his people and speak through his people for the glory of his name and the good of the whole church. So thank you very much, Lord. I pray that you would develop in us a sensitivity to you. I pray that you develop in us a boldness in you so that when you lead us to speak, we would speak. When you lead us to sing, we would sing. When you lead us to serve, we would serve. When you lead us to be quiet, we would be quiet. When you lead us to pray, we would pray. When you lead us to go to the nations, we would go to the nations. Oh Lord, develop an obedient, submissive sensitivity in our hearts to your presence, I pray. How we love you and how we thank you for what you're doing and how I bless your name because the prayers that were prayed earlier just so perfectly blend with what you put on my heart to share this morning. So come now, Holy Spirit, and do your great work in me and through me for the glory of your name and the good of your church, I pray. Amen. Over the last couple weeks, we've been talking about how God builds Koinonia in the church. We had already seen something of how our Father means to build us into the body of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit and even into the Bride of Christ. And now we're asking the practical question, how does He do that? If those things are realities, if those are to come to fruition in everyday lives of people just like us, how does God actually manifest among us and build koinonia in the church? Last week I said that I saw four practical steps for this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. We're actually going to be dealing with 1 Corinthians 12 today, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to there. But let me just summarize what I drew out of Ephesians 4 last week. I saw four steps by which God builds koinonia in the church. And you're welcome to read that text and check me on this and let the Lord show you and either confirm or disconfirm what I'm about to say. Number one, I see in verse 11 that God appoints leaders in the church, vests them with authority, and then commands the rest of the church to submit to their leadership in humility. Number two, I see that God immediately calls those leaders not to use their authority for themselves, but for the good of the church and inflame the spiritual gifts of the church, or as Paul writes it, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Number three, God commands then each person in the church to utilize his or her spiritual gifts for the glory of his name and the upbuilding of the whole. And finally, number four, as each part plays its part, the body of Christ is built up in love, verse 16, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer tossed to and fro by every new teaching that comes down the pike, but we're able to stand strong in the storms and in the wind and to speak the truth in love to both believers and non-believers alike. Two weeks ago, we dealt with step one and the issue of leadership in the church. And last week, we began to deal with step two. And specifically, I addressed the question, what does it mean to equip the saints for the work of ministry? If the whole point of leadership in the church is to inflame the gifts of the church, then it seems to me pretty important that we understand what it means to equip the saints. And so I answered that it essentially comes down to three words. It comes down to truth, love, and skills. We equip people with truth because God is a God of truth. He has revealed Himself, His being, His will, His ways in very particular ways. And so we have to come to understand what those ways are. God is not a generic God. He's a particular God. And so we must grow in truth if we're to love Him as He is. 
Secondly, we equip people in love because the object of growing in truth is to love God more and to love each other more. The object of truth is not just to know a bunch of stuff so you can impress people, right? The object of truth is to love Him who is the truth. And so we equip the people in love. We fan into flame their affections for God and not just their knowledge about God. And then finally, we equip people with skills because the end of love is submitting to the will of God. And the will of God takes skill. It takes skill to teach. It takes skill to serve. It takes skill to raise a family. It takes skill to go to the other parts of the world and share the gospel. It takes skill to be a Christian in the workplace. Doing the will of God takes skills. Truth, love, and skills. Now, I do want to make one slight change to this little trilogy. I'd like to exchange the word skills for the word gifts, and especially I mean spiritual gifts. While it's true to say that it takes skill to do the will of God, it's better to say that it takes the supernatural enabling of God to do the will of God. Agreed? You cannot do, I cannot do the will of God on my own. I am a radically corrupt human being. To the core, I'm corrupt. And I always and only want to do my own will. If I am to in fact do the will of God, I must have His supernatural power to do it. And that power is probably better called a gift than a skill. And so I want to restate what I said last week and say that to equip the saints is to build them up in truth, in love, and in spiritual giftings. And this week, I want to begin a conversation with you about spiritual gifts because they are an essential piece of how God builds koinonia in the church. If you remove spiritual gifts from the church, you remove the Holy Spirit's activity from the church, and you either stunt its growth or you, in fact, kill it. In fact, we'll see in a few minutes that to shut out spiritual gifts from the church is to shut out the Holy Spirit Himself. And none of us wants to be caught doing that, I'm sure. Now, I am aware, because I've talked to many of you about this topic over the last few years, that there are at least a few of you that have a slight hesitation in you about this whole topic of spiritual gifts, and that's for good reasons. You've seen abuses, and you've seen misuses of this doctrine over the past several decades. In certain sectors of the church, the teaching on spiritual gifts has not been tightly tethered to the Word of God. And so that has produced at least two results. Number one, it has made so much of the gifts that the gifts almost become idols, and people seek the gifts themselves, it seems, more than the giver, more than the good of the whole church. And secondly, when the teaching of spiritual gifts is untethered from the Word, it gives rise to spiritual practices which are unbiblical and which bring shame to the name of God and not glory. For instance, a few years ago, you'll remember the whole thing about being slain in the Spirit. I remember hearing one preacher say that there's no inherent value in falling down. You know, if God comes upon a person and they do happen to fall, then they happen to fall. But there was this teaching that invaded the church that that for the Holy Spirit to come upon you means you must fall. That's a false teaching. Not long after that, the whole teaching of holy laughter came about. And then even a worse teaching a few years ago, where people began actually channeling animal sounds and animal actions and claiming that it was the Holy Spirit working through them. That's garbage. That is absolute garbage. And the reason it's allowed is because the teaching is not tethered to the Word. I can tell you that as a man who spent many years, over 20 years, studying this whole doctrine of spiritual gifts, I do believe 
in the full employment of every gift that the Bible mentions. I am not a cessationist. I don't believe that certain gifts don't exist in the church anymore. However, I also believe that the same Holy Spirit that gives those gifts is the one that breathed out the Word of God. And He never acts in a way that contradicts His Word. You see, that would be for Him to contradict Himself, right? If He spoke clearly in the Word, He will not contradict that through some supposed Word that comes to somebody in the church. He will not do that. We cannot shut out the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this church. That would be a great sin. But we must know that He always does that in conformity with His revealed will. And so at this church, I promise you that the teaching of spiritual gifts will always remain tethered tightly to the Word of God. And if you ever see a practice in this church that is not tethered to the Word of God, I invite you to point that out to the elders. I promise you, we will search the Word. We will repent where we are wrong. We will bring our activity in line with the Word. I promise you that. And if we don't, discipline us. And if we don't respond to discipline, fire us. Make sure that the leadership of this church tethers the teaching to the Word. Amen? But having tethered the teaching to the Word, we must allow the Holy Spirit to function in the way that He wants to function. In other sectors of the church, the teaching of spiritual gifts is taking on a corporate dynamic so that the way one discovers his or her spiritual gifts is to take a little class and then fill out a tidy little exam and boom, out pops your four or five or six or seven spiritual gifts. The problem with that kind of mechanized approach, though, is that spiritual gifts aren't discovered through a process or, or a mechanical process. They're discovered through relationship. Spiritual gifts are born of love, you see? A spiritual gift is born of the love of God and intimacy with God. As the son or the daughter of God draws near to the father, and the father empowers that one to play some role in the life of the church. You can't figure out what that is by taking a little test. You just can't. And by the way, sometimes the gifts change. One day you may have a gift of helps in a particular situation because that's the need of the body at the time. And so the Holy Spirit has empowered you to play that part. But now another month or another six months or a year or five years later, He invests you with another gift because that's what's best for the body at that time. Gifts shift and change according to the needs of the body and the purposes of the Holy Spirit. And so you can't just take a test and figure out what your spiritual gifts are. They are born of intimacy. And so at this church, what we're going to do is not so much give classes that help you discover your spiritual gifts. We might give a class that talks about the subject of spiritual gifts, goes through the texts that deal with spiritual gifts, but we won't be trying to put you all through a process that's mechanized. We're going to try to do is equip you with truth and inflame your hearts with love and help you to increase your level of intimacy with the Father because that's where your spiritual gifts will be found. As you as a child crawl into the lap of your Abba Father and He blesses you to play a role inside the life of the church. That is the, the air, the, the flavor that I hope will take shape here at Glory of Christ as we think about the unleashing of spiritual gifts. So, with that, my desire for this week and the next two weeks is to work through the teaching of spiritual gifts with you by considering key biblical texts. And I want to 
all of us, to just put ourselves underneath the authority of the Word and just let the Word of God shape our minds with regard to this teaching. I have no other agenda or preconceived outcome than for the life of this church to come into conformity with the revealed will of God. So please pay close attention to me. Brother or sister, or even children, those of you who believe and you are in Christ, believe me, you could be the one through whom the Holy Spirit speaks to the rest of this church in the coming weeks. So be paying attention. Stand up. Be awake in the Spirit. Listen to His Word. And if He speaks to you about the life of our church, please be bold to share that with the elders. Now, with that, let's turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 12. I want to work through chapter 12 this week. Next week, I'll come back and work through chapters 13 and 14, and then we'll move on the following week to draw some implications and look at a few other texts. There are a lot of texts in the Scripture about spiritual gifts, but obviously, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is the the pinnacle of them, and so that's why I want to start there. I think a pretty strong argument could be made for the fact that spiritual gifts is the theme of 1 Corinthians, not just 12, 13, and 14, but of chapters 1 all the way through 14. If you look later on your own at chapter 1, verse 4 and following, you'll see that Paul immediately brings up the topic of spiritual gifts, and then I think he, he, he weaves that train of thought all the way through the letter until he comes to chapter 12, and then he deals with the topic more specifically. He says in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. That word gifts there, by the way, in this verse is actually not there in the Greek, which is why if you're reading the ESV, you'll see a little note in your Bible that says this could be translated spiritual persons. That's just because in Greek the word gifts is actually not there in verse 1. But one way or the other, the point is that Paul's now turning the attention specifically and directly to the topic of spiritual gifts. In verses 1 to 3, I think that he's probably addressing a question that the Corinthians had asked of him. If you look at chapter 7, verse 1, you can see that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter and they asked him a number of questions. And so from chapter 7 forward, Paul begins addressing a number of questions. And the best way I can make sense of verses 1 to 3 is that Paul is simply answering something that the Corinthians had asked. But more important than that, I think, is what he begins to do in verse 4. Verses 4 through 11 get to the meat, I think, the whole punch of why Paul wrote the letter to 1 Corinthians. So let's first read verses 4, 5, and 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So just as he does in Ephesians 4, Paul brings out two different and yet closely related ideas. One is that there's a variety of kinds of gifts inside the church. We're not all equal in the particular gifts that we have or in the intensity of those gifts. That's one idea. And yet, on the other hand, we are all one because there's one Spirit, there is one Lord, and there is one God. So yes, there's variety, there's diversity, there's difference. But we are one in the Holy Spirit by the grace of God, which is why Paul writes verse 7, which I think is probably the thesis statement of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, at least chapters 1 to 14. Paul writes, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Oh, what an important verse that is. I want to draw three lessons out of it. Number one, spiritual gifts are in fact 
the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We must understand this. Spiritual gifts are the outward evidence of the inward indwelling presence of the Spirit in our lives. And so when we operate in our gifts, what we're actually doing is displaying the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're not bringing attention to the gifts. We're not bringing attention to ourselves. We're bringing attention to the presence of the Spirit in the life of the church. The Spirit does empower each one to play a role, but the main thing He's up to is manifesting Himself in the church. And I think the reason He does that is because on the one hand, if the gifts are manifesting Him, guess who gets all the glory for the gifts, right? Even a, a greatly gifted person like John Piper, when he stands in front of tens of thousands of people and preaches with all of his heart, he cannot take the credit or the glory for what he's just done. Because it's simply the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the good of the whole church. It's not about John Piper or anybody else. It's about the Holy Spirit manifesting Himself. I don't think we can overestimate this lesson. That spiritual gifts are in fact the revealing of the Spirit through the lives of His people. Oh, what joy will be found there for us if we will learn that lesson well. Second lesson that I take. Every single individual who believes in Jesus Christ is granted the privilege of the Holy Spirit both living in them and working out His will through their lives. Every single one. As I said last week, there are no extra parts in the body of Christ. There are no unimportant parts in the body of Christ. There are no inferior parts in the body of Christ. But each and every one of you has an indispensable role to play for the glory of God and the good of His whole church. And so, brother and sister, stand up in your spirit. Be awake now and listen. Receive this from the Lord. Take note of this. That the Holy Spirit is longing to manifest Himself in the church through your life. If you are in Christ, He has a will to manifest Himself to the rest of us through you. So stand up and pay attention to that. Seek that manifestation. Don't give yourself to the trivial and fading things of the world that are going to die away someday. Don't invest yourselves in things that don't matter. Seek the things that matter. And what matters most is the will of God for your life in the context of the church. So seek it as though it were gold. The Holy Spirit has a will for you. And believe me, His will is better than pure gold. The third lesson I take from this verse is that the purpose of spiritual gifts in the life of the church is the common good of the whole church. And I do think that this is the main point Paul is trying to drive home to the Corinthians. If you see in chapter 1, right after he brings up spiritual gifts, the very next thing he talks about is division. And then in chapter 11, right before chapter 12, he also brings up again the divisions in the church. I think he was really concerned that they were using their passion for spiritual gifts to sort of create a pecking order inside the church and to divide from one another, and he did not want that to happen. So he wanted them to understand that the gifts given to each and every individual for the manifestation of the Spirit were intended for the good of the whole church. And how I pray that we will learn that lesson as well. This is why I think Paul writes in verses 8 through 11. He says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, 
to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, and then here we come again back to the point. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each one of these individually as He wills. Now, I'm going to come back in a couple weeks and talk about the particulars of each of these gifts. But for now, I just want again to bring our minds back to this thought. I think the Corinthians were prone, just like the disciples were prone, and just like we're prone, to use spiritual gifts to cause divisions in the life of the church. I'm thinking about, you remember the time when the disciples were walking down the road and they began arguing with one another? And what were they arguing about? These guys were actually debating each other about which one of them was going to be the greatest one in the kingdom of God. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine Kevin and I and Mike, we have our elders meetings down at Dunn Brothers, Glory of Christ South in Rogers. Can you imagine us sitting around there and debating, now which one of us is really the man? Which one of us is the greatest? But that was the impulse in the heart of the disciples, and I think, honestly, it's the impulse in the lives of so many people in the church, even to this day. It's a natural impulse in us, because that's how our flesh works. There's a pecking order. And to be better, you've got to be at the top of the order. But God just doesn't think this way. And so Paul is trying to lift up the sights of the Corinthians and say, look at the beautiful thing God is doing. He's manifesting His very Spirit through the lives of every single individual in the church for the good of the whole church. The pecking order is not relevant. The purposes of God working out through the life of the church, that's what's relevant. Now that's why Paul does what he does in verses 15 and following. He begins in... uh, Actually, let me back up just a second in verse 12 and say that that's where he begins to develop this metaphor of the church as the body of Christ. This idea that each one functions for the good of the whole leads to this most famous metaphor. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Then, in verses 15 to 20, Paul addresses those of us who feel that we might be inferior in the body and that we might even be an unnecessary part of the body. So, brother or sister, please hear me. If you're one of those, if you sit in church week after week or just live out your Christian life day after day thinking that you're essentially an unnecessary part of the body, verses 15 through 20 were written for you. Please listen carefully to them because Paul is trying to encourage you. He's trying to give you grace through Jesus Christ. Just because you think you're unimportant doesn't mean that you are unimportant. If the whole body were one single part, what kind of body would that be, right? If the whole body were an eye, how would we hear anything? It would be great. We could see a lot of stuff, but we wouldn't be able to hear anything. If the whole body were in ear, that would not be good, because then where would the sense of smell be? We'd be able to hear all kinds of stuff, but we wouldn't be able to smell or see or taste or anything else. It would make us essentially a worthless and ridiculous body. But as it is, verse 18, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as He chose. And so, brother or sister... You have the part that you have in the body of Christ because God designed that part for you. God custom designed you 
to play a particular role inside the body. And your value, your purpose, your dignity, your worth in the church does not come from your role, but from your relationship to God. Who cares about the particulars of your role? i got to tell you, I love teaching the Word of God week after week. It is a high joy for me. But I mean it when I say that if God changed my job description and made me the toilet cleaner and the window washer, I would be just as happy. Because my joy comes not from position, but from my relationship to Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said, don't take joy that the demons listen to you and all of that stuff. Take joy that your name is written in the book of life. Take joy that you're connected to God Almighty. Brother or sister, that's what gives you your worth. And the Bible says, this is not my word, this is the word the Bible chose. The Bible says you, even though you feel you're inferior, are an indispensable part. Did you hear that? Indispensable. That means that without you, the whole thing falls apart. That is the grace of God and the glory of God upon your life. Now, for those of us who have the opposite problem and think that we're just a little bit better than the rest, a little bit exalted over the others, and yeah, everyone else in the body is loved by God, but thank God that God gave me to the church. People who have that kind of an attitude, Paul wrote verses 21 through 26 for people like that. And essentially what he says is that no one part of the body can exalt itself over the rest of the body and claim either superiority or independence. That's ridiculous. Let's think about the eye. The eye is a really good thing. It's an important part. It's very visible. It's necessary. Without it, we couldn't do much. We couldn't see. We'd be running into stuff. We really need eyes. But... If you take your eyeball out and stick it on the table, detach it from the body, that eye is going to lose both its life and its purpose. Sorry for the disgusting illustration, but I hope it sticks with you. The eye is dependent on all the little parts of the body for its life. The eye does not live by itself. It needs the rest of the body. It might not think it does, but it does. And the purpose of the eye is to see not only for itself, but to see for the good of the whole entire body. And so no one part of the body can exalt itself over the rest and say, I'm superior or I'm independent. It can't happen that way. Quite the contrary. Paul says in these verses that God has chosen to give greater honor to those parts of the body that seemed to lack honor. God has exalted in His sight those parts of the body which are diminished in our sight so that we'll be equal with one another. He's not trying to create an opposite kind of division. He's trying to equal out the playing field. Beloved, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. It's completely level. And there are no greater women of God there. None. There has never been a great woman or a great man of God in history. There have only been men and women who've entrusted their lives to a great God. That's it. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and each of us has an equal kind of a role, an equal kind of a standing, an equal kind of honor before God. So, if you struggle with pride, I would encourage you to go to verses 21 through 26 and let your Father teach you. Let Him shape you more perfectly into His image. Let Him shape more well your own self-perception And let Him shape more well your perception of the value of the other parts of the body around you. 
The heart of God for the life of the church is that there be no divisions among us, even in the secret places of our hearts. He wants us to be one in Jesus Christ. And you'll see there in verses 25 and 26 there, that he wants us to feel this so deeply that when one person suffers, all of us feel it as though we're suffering. When Kim's grandfather dies, the Lord wants every one of you to feel as though your grandfather has died because you are one in Christ with her. And her suffering is your suffering. And on the other hand, when one is honored, he wants us all to rejoice together as though we've been honored. When Diane Ricks gives birth to another baby, Gideon Patrick Ricks, praise God for him. We should all rejoice, and I mean this, as though a baby has been born into our family because we're one in Christ. And in fact, a baby has been born into our family. And so when one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. We are one body in Christ. And no matter what happens to us, no matter what kind of gifts come into the body, no matter what position we have, we are one. We fight together. We pray together. We rejoice together. We suffer together. We give glory to God together. We do life together. And there's no inequality among us. All of us are equal in Christ. Now with that, let me just say a couple closing words about verses 27 to 31. This will only take about three minutes and we'll be done. Now that Paul has made this clear, and I I really do pray that we'll internalize this truth, that there are no inferior parts in this body, there are no superior parts in this body. Now that he's established that, Paul goes on to talk about how God has ordered the gifts in the life of the church. The fact that we're one and that we're equal as far as honor goes doesn't mean that there's not an order. God is a God of order and He set up an order. So he writes in verse 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. These ordinal words, first, second, third, and so on, clearly display that Paul sees an, an, a hierarchy of gifts in the church, and he sees a flow of authority inside the church. But you have to remember what he just got done saying and realize that he's not arguing for division among us. He's saying even though there's authority, there is no division. It's just simply that God has appointed certain people to play certain parts for the purposes that he has determined and the glory of his name. So rest in that. And verse 31, pursue the higher gifts. Pursue the greater gifts. Now, if you're not reading carefully, you might come to think that what Paul means there is to pursue the gifts that are higher up on the pecking order that he just described. But that is not what he means. We are not to strive to move up the pecking order in the body. What we're to strive to do is discern the will of God for our part in the body. Whatever your part is, it needs to be played. And your joy will be found in playing that part. So when Paul says, seek the higher gifts, you know what he has in mind. He has chapter 13 in mind. He has faith, hope, and love in mind. And the greatest of these is love. Love. Love is the key to understanding the thesis of 1 Corinthians. To each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. 
It is love that makes the spiritual gifts work the way they're supposed to work in the life of the church. And oh, I cannot wait until next week to talk with you about that. I can't wait to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and pray to God that He blows on the embers of love in the life of this church and help us to see what that looks like. But for now, let us particularly meditate on verse 7. To each and every one of us sitting in this room that believes in Jesus Christ, you have been granted a manifestation of the Spirit for the good of the whole church. So seek after it. Paul says that. Those aren't my words earnestly desire it, he says. And we'll see in chapter 14, he repeats himself. But for now, let's pray. My Father, it's hard for me to articulate the joy that's bubbling up in my heart right now as I contemplate your gracious words to us in our time of prayer earlier and through the worship. And then now as I have delivered this word that you've been stirring in me for so long now, Oh God, I just love you for what you're doing in the life of the church and I pray that you would complete it. Lord, I have this vision of you coming into the church and blowing on the embers of this church so that the the coals begin to glow brighter and brighter and brighter and then boom, here comes the flame of the Holy Spirit pulsing through the church, constantly honoring the Word of God but filling that Word with the life that it was intended for. So please come, Lord. Do your work in us. Teach us through your word and mold us into the people that you would want us to be. For the glory of your name, the good of your whole church, and the salvation of the nations, I pray. Amen.